there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Time for Coffee. If you're interested in learning more about what a producer and an executive producer does in the music industry, whether in rock, hip hop, country, or opera, and a ton of other genres in between, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the CEO of an international media and music firm that has experience on every continent in television, music, live events, artist strategy, film, radio, print, and digital media. But before I introduce you to Jeff Pollock, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive look inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jeff Pollock, the CEO of the Pollock Media Group. After starting out in radio, Jeff launched his own company 40 years ago in 1980, and it's grown to include a diverse clientele, including MTV, VH1, CMT, Spotify, SFX, Entertainment, Delta Airlines, and the Smithsonian. As a producer, Jeff has participated in some of the largest music and charity events of the last couple of decades. Have you heard of Live Aid? What about Live 8 or the 70th anniversary of the Apollo Theater and so much more? As a music supervisor, Jeff has worked on over 30 films, five of which received Academy Award nominations for Best Original Song. One of them actually went on to win an Academy Award. The song is entitled Weary Kind and it came from the film Crazy Heart starring Jeff Bridges. Some of Jeff's Current projects include producing a new two-part documentary entitled Laurel Canyon. That's going to be premiering on Epics in early 2020. And the documentary The Gift, The Journey of Johnny Cash, that premiered in November 2019. And Jeff is also an executive producer on a wonderful new Netflix hip-hop competition entitled Rhythm and Flow. It's featuring the very demure Cardi B, Tip, and Chance the Rapper, and it premiered on Netflix also in 2019. Jeff, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Thank you for having me. I am definitely buzzing. Okay. Well, I want to let you know, I have a bone to pick with you, Jeff. I'm glad. Okay. I'm really upset with you because I am overtired today and it is all your fault. Do you want to know why? I do. Tell me about it. Because as I was preparing for this interview today... I ended up staying up so much later than I wanted to last night because I got sucked into watching Rhythm and Flow and binging on all the episodes. It is so good. Thank you. Did you watch all 10? No. 
No, my God, no. I would be dead right now. I I do need some sleep because I'm not only a caffeine junkie. I'm also a reality TV music show junkie. And one of my kind of guilty pleasures is to watch The Voice when I'm working out. And this show, this rhythm and flow is so right up my alley. And what makes it in my opinion, better than The Voice, is that it is so much more real, it's more gritty, and I felt like I was really getting to know the competitors. Is that what you were striving to achieve as one of the executive producers of the show? Yes. I think when myself and Jeff Gaspin developed the show originally, we knew there wasn't anything like it on Uh, television. We just didn't know if we'd find a home for it because we wanted to do the antithesis of Idol and The Voice. We did not want to make another slick show and nothing against those shows, but the talent is not memorable. The Voice is much more about the judges than the talent. It's about those swinging chairs. And, you know, we were interested in making sure that we had a show that was authentic in every way. And again, that's a word that's overused, but we wanted to make sure that we did something that really felt like the street that was gritty, that could attract the kind of talent that you would never see on those other shows. And when you think about it, given the politics and given the language and and given you know some of the sexual references on the show, you wouldn't see any of those people on any other show. Thank goodness Netflix has become a place where you can really present something fresh and new and feel like it's a show that if you're 18 or if in your 50s, you can watch the show and get something out of it. Everybody got something different out of it. Some people said to me, well, I really learned a lot more about hip hop. I really learned about how it is. I saw how creative it is. I really learned so much about it. Others were really engaged by the talent. People loved the judges. The judges were great and they were honest and they gave tough love. But as you saw on the show, Andrea, we don't have a Simon Cowell. We don't have somebody who is mean to be mean. If you're going to get tough love, it's because, you know, you're not really presenting yourself in the right way. But, you know, no one's trying to do anything other than to be honest and realize that the journey to success is a long one. and It's a hard one. And we had incredible talent. And as we saw, which is interesting, our winner, which I will not reveal in case somebody no, listens, don't. has not. Our winner, he or she, ended up in three weeks after the show with 1.4 million Instagram followers. The last winner of The Voice has 74,000. So that gives you an idea, I think, of people really feeling a connection and understanding the quality of our contestants and the winner was incredible, was incredible and is having a lot of success right now. So I think what we tried to do, we were largely successful, was you would not confuse our show 
with any other music competition show. No. That's really what we were after. No. And I love the way that you bring viewers into the lives of contestants and into the hood. There was one contestant, 27-year-old Inglewood Ivy, mm-hmm. who is talking about working two jobs. And you see him in the one room that he lives in with his daughter and his wife. And his wife is pregnant with their second child. And he's talking about working two jobs while he's trying to strive for his dream. And they're living in one room. I, I forget if it was a grandparent or a brother or somebody else's house. It is very real. And the wonderful thing about hip hop and about these contestants is that they are singing about their lives. They are rapping about their reality. The really good ones are. They're drawing upon their lives. And you don't get that at all because of the songs that are being selected on the American Idols and the voice. The voice. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you responded to that. I mean, if the interview you're talking about with Inglewood, where he's just trying to get out of where he is and he's worried about his daughter because there's gangbangers outside when he's walking her to the store, these are real one on one connective stories to a viewer. This is something where it's not this random thing. When you talk about walking your child outside and you're you're scared to do that. I don't know how you don't react emotionally to a story like that or to Big Mouth Bo in Chicago with with her grandmother and the encounter they have with each other there. I mean there there's some really beautiful moments in there and I think they all happen. They all happened organically. We had a group of people who had one goal only and that was to present things that were real and that actually happened. And I think that's why we've we've had such an amazing reaction from the hip hop community and from viewers. I mean, we would have never counted on getting the press reviews we've gotten from people like The New Yorker and Time and Newsweek and O Magazine and New York Times. I mean, I just, we never thought we would end up, you know, as a show that people would understand what we were trying to do. You know, you set out to do these things and you just hope people like it. And, you know, we really feel that we were duty bound to do it the right way. What did you do as executive producer and what does it mean to be an EP of a show like this? Well, there are always a lot of EPs on some of these shows. For me on the show, I listened to all of the auditions, when we got it down to under a thousand auditions and then chose from that the best of those, that's sort of how it started. You're involved in all the tapings, you're brainstorming features and ideas and things that work, the chemistry of the judges. I mean, it's, it's really a group of people. You've got a showrunner, you know, you've got the director, you've got the producer, and then you have the EPs that are very involved in it. And if you're lucky enough to be an active EP like I was on this, you're involved in all the rough cuts as they begin to edit. Because remember, when you're making these things, boring television really does hurt you. You've got to make it compelling. So the editing process on this is crucial. 
it's like editing on a documentary is crucial. It really does make a difference between getting somebody bored or getting somebody invested. And I think that we had a great team of people to help us do that. So that's that's what I did on this show. Obviously, I was very involved in the music and listening to the music and figuring out what we were going to do with the music from the show. I think what was also different about Rhythm and Flow is there was no deals. There were no record deals. There were no merchandise deals. There were no touring deals. Chance, in particular, led the charge on that because he said, let's let everybody be independent and not be beholden to a label. If you win, then you win and you can make your own deal. And I think a lot of people like that about it. How long was this in production? When did you start doing the preparations, the filming, and then obviously it just dropped in the last few weeks. We're here in December now of 2019. Right. It took about a year, but we shot it. There was a long post period, but also when it's a global show and it's Netflix, meaning that it drops everywhere at the same time, you need several months for the subtitles and and then the dubbing. Because some countries look at subtitles and some, like Japan, for example, there's somebody speaking Japanese when (laughs) Cardi's talking. So you need to have a period of time when all of that can happen. So in October, when it dropped, it was a global release. Okay, gotcha. So you've produced, Jeff, as I laid out in the introduction, in a variety of contexts for documentaries, for live music events. How does the role of producer differ from a documentary film like the one you just completed, The Journey of Johnny Cash, The Gift, The Journey of Johnny Cash, versus a live event that you've produced over the years to producing for film, where you're working just on the music for the film? Right. Well, a documentary, which... I'm happy to say is having its moment right now because documentaries really are something that people want to see and a lot of music stories are being told. I think the important thing is, first of all, what's the story you want to tell? If it's about Johnny Cash, there's been a lot of things about Johnny Cash before us. But I met with the estate, so I sort of originated the project with the Johnny Cash estate and and. John Carter Cash. And we talked about this, the fact that the Folsom prison show was coming up and it was the 50th anniversary of there. And could we tell Johnny's story using the occasion of the 50th anniversary? And, and in a documentary, you're always looking for the way in. That's what people say. What's your way in to tell the story of David Bowie? What's your way in to tell the story about Queen? And When we did Sinatra, which was on HBO in 2015, our way in was the retirement concert that Frank did when he was in his mid-50s and no longer felt he was relevant. And he did a show, and it turns out that Gregory Peck told him, why don't you film it? And when we first met with the Sinatras, and we found out from Nancy that there was a concert sitting on her closet floor of what he thought was going to be his final concert of 11 songs, and we took those 11 songs used him as chapters and told the story of his life throughout that. And with Cash, we used Folsom because Folsom did tell you the story of the pain 
of growing up and what he has. It's a very interesting film for people who haven't seen it because it's a certainly a different side of cash. And I think that what you try to do with documentaries is have something new to tell. Make sure that you have the right music in it, which I'm, I'm very involved in because it's always complicated with rights. And that the editor is crucial in that if you walk into a room and you know documentaries well, you know, you have it all laid out and you're, you're looking at all the facts and you're looking at all the things that might have happened in someone's life. And now how do you connect them all? And then how do you tell something that is an interesting story? All of us were influenced by that brilliant documentary Senna about the Formula One racer. And I'm not interested in racing at all. And I love the film. And there were no talking heads in that film. So if you see Johnny Cash film, you will see that we don't have people sitting on camera talking. Well, Johnny was this or Johnny was that. The only person you see on camera in our film is Johnny Cash. That's it. You'll see him on camera or you'll hear his voice. We just found that the ability to tell a story without constantly interrupting or the disconnect between somebody who you see the footage of them when they were in their 30s and, and suddenly you switch them in their 70s and then back and forth. And that again sort of interrupts the flow and takes away, at least in terms of our sense of doing documentaries, of telling something that is a seamless tale that goes on. So that's the sort of thing you do as a executive producer when it comes to a documentary is finding the story, finding, you know, making sure that the estate is happy, that you tell a true story, something that they're comfortable with. And then producing live events is just getting talent. It's basically, what's our messaging? What's the, you know, what are, what, what are we trying to say in Live 8? How do we want to do it? Who's going to play? What venue? How long are the sets going to be? What are we going to do on stage when people are waiting for the set change to happen? Do we flip it to Berlin when Green Day is on while U2 has just left the stage in London? I mean, those are the sorts of things you do when you're producing big music events. When I started as a DJ, I first started as a DJ, I liked to tell stories. I didn't realize at the time, I don't think I could articulate it to myself, but I liked being able to use music to tell a story. Here am I. Years and years later, having pretty much pivoted to a full-time producer because I love telling stories and I love telling stories about music. It's full circle for me now to be able to work in rock and roll's early days, at least the, the 60s and 70s, and now work with hip hop where all the energy seems to be. I mean, I can connect the dots in my head between Led Zeppelin and the Doors and the sensibility of that stuff going to the 90s, which resurrected the Seattle scene with Nirvana and Soundgarden and all those incredible bands. And then me, I was waiting and waiting. I said, where's the next Nirvana? When are we going to have somebody who completely changes the language of, of rock and roll again and turns it back to a, a time when everything mattered, where lyrics mattered and they would move you, you know, from, you know, Joni Mitchell to Kurt Cobain. And then I discovered it's in hip hop that waiting all this time for a rock band to shake it up and, and change it, it's not going to be rock and roll anymore, I don't think. Because I think all the things that are happening lyrically and real life, and I can draw a through line from Neil Young to hip hop, to Kanye West. This is what's happening. This is why people 
are engaging with hip hop. This is why young people, the dominating musical genre for young people is hip hop. And it's because it's real. It's happening. It's on the street. It's they're singing about things that matter. All of this has come full circle, except people haven't realized that hip hop is the new language of pop music. It is mainstream pop music is hip hop music. Mm. And that's why Rhythm and Flow for us was lucky to be able to produce that. Oh, I love that answer, Jeff. And actually, I had not thought about hip hop in that way. So thank you for connecting those dots. What advice do you have for our listeners who may want to build their careers as you have in the music industry, and especially for those who want to work behind the scenes as you have? What do you wish you'd known when you started out? I think I'm lucky I didn't really know what I wanted to do, except I wanted to be around music because a lot of the things I did were purely by instinct and by being interested in things, you know, working on films, which is now 40 films that I've been a music supervisor on and realizing that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to be the guy who found that incredibly important song to drive emotion and help develop the the narrative. So I think you just have to follow whatever the opportunity is because the business has changed so much. I never really had a plan other than I wanted to be near music. And if that's a simple plan for anybody listening, good. Then figure out today what the opportunities are to be around music because there's so many things you can do. You can work at ESPN and pick music for the sporting events. You can work for a company that picks music for the airlines. You can be a DJ on the Spotify-inspired radio station. You can work as a broadcaster. You can do so many different things, and you just have to continue to do the work, do the listening. Don't fall in love with the job before you know how to do it. you got to really put in the time, have something to offer, but don't be intimidated just because you, you think that somebody else has got that job and you can't get it. That job is not going to resemble the same task five years from now. It's going to be different. The skill set will probably be different. Remain flexible and take risks. Even if you don't think you can really do the job, take it anyway. You'll figure it out. I'm just saying if you're smart, I think you can do anything. If, if, even if somebody says, Okay, I'm going to let you do this. Do you know how to do it? Your answer should always be yes. And then you figure it out and you ask somebody somebody's advice, you know, if you need to. It's time to Google. Yeah. How difficult is it to make a living in this industry if you're behind the scenes? And what are all the different tracks that they could take? There's obviously the producing and the editing. Yes, there's there's so many things you can be in. You can work at a record label. You can work in marketing. You can work for the many companies that service bands in terms of independent artists. The independent music market now is about a third of the business. There are tons of different services who are distributing music and 
doing marketing services. There are just a lot of things that none of us knew about and didn't exist before. So it can be in supporting the independent music side. You can be working at a major label. You can work music. Every company these days wants to have a music strategy. Everybody, you know, McDonald's is ahead of music. So you can look and find there are a lot of different things that you can do. You can work at an ad agency. You can work at a studio. You can be looking for young bands. One way to get in the business is if you hear a really good band, sign them and then develop them. If you don't know what you're doing, partner up with a bigger manager and that's a way to get into management is if you find somebody, if you find the next Billy Eilish, just show up and say, I've got Zach and want you to hear. Because a lot of people have gotten their start that way, where they sort of were joined at the hip with one act and they introduced themselves and suddenly, you know, they're, they're in the management business. So there's a lot of different ways to get into the business, into the film business, you know, into the streaming business making your own videos. You can be working at TikTok. You can be working at Snapchat. All of these exciting places have film and music at the backbone. Don't try to be a specialist. Try to be good at several things so you'll be more attractive to people who who you're getting in front of. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. I just want to flash back to when you were in college. You went to the University of Denver and you majored in mass communications. I know you didn't graduate. You said you got a DJing job and then you went into music through that path. Did you know what you were going to do with your mass communications degree when you were in college? No, I don't think so. I, I, I was interested in radio and it sounded pretty cool. I'm not sure exactly what I was going to do. I, I have to be honest with myself. I don't know that I ever completed a course in my major. I did complete many courses in German, which were, that was very handy to me <laughs> living in LA. But so I, I, I think, again, it was the environment of college, which was so important to me. And I love it. And I would tell everybody to go to college, you know, whether they finish or not would depend on how excited they were and how motivated they were. And it would depend on the institution. I, I just happened to work at a very professional college radio station and then got hired out of there to be a DJ on a commercial station. Two final questions, Jeff. If you could share a time from your professional life when you really struggled during the Espresso Shots interview, you and I were both talking about the importance of taking risks, the importance of picking yourself up after you've failed or screwed something up and just keep going forward. And in that story that you tell or that example you share, if you could include how you persevered and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. Well, I remember when I was on the air at the big commercial station in Denver. And I was working for a guy and I was burned out. And I said to him, listen, I, I want to go to England and do some artist interviews. You don't have to pay me while I'm gone. I was the music director of the station, which is a number two guy. And I was on the air too. And I said, look, let me just have the next five weeks off. It's through Christmas and I'll come back and, and I'll be energized. He said, fine. Good. So I went, I did some interviews, I came back and I didn't have a job. And it was a pretty humiliating 
experience to think I was such an important part of the station when I get home, you know, I'm, there, there's no job. So he agreed to put me on part-time. So you can imagine going from the prominence of that to being part-time. He, he was very volatile sort of guy. So he was humiliating. And then I worked my way back on the air by you end up eating crow or whatever you're eating at the time. And I was determined at that point. I said, you know, well, guess what? As soon as I get a job, I'm out of here. So I got back full time. And a month later, I had a full time job in California. And he said, why are you leaving? And I said, you know why? <laughs> you're going to ask yourself that question. So it was refusing to allow a personality like that to change the way I felt about myself and the way I felt what I could do in the future. So I would just say when you run into somebody like that or a situation like that, just remember that you've got talent and that you will bounce back. It happens to all of us all the time, you know? Everybody gets fired. Everybody gets pushed out. Everybody gets comes in second in a popularity contest when something's coming out, whether it's a part for a film or you really want to work somewhere and you didn't come in first. All of that, you just have to say, okay, fair enough. I'm disappointed. Next. Yeah. And it was up to you and it will be up to our listeners to look for that other job. <laughs> to look for that other opportunity because they're not necessarily going to be looking for you, right? You yeah. got to go and have that self-driven side of yourself to remove yourself from a bad situation. Nothing's coming to you. You got to go get it. I remember when I had graduated from college, my dad, the advice he gave me was, Andrea, nobody is going to be looking for you astride some white horse and pull up in front of the house and say, oh, my God, Andrea Koppel, we've been looking everywhere for you. You're going to have to make it happen. All I can say is I love your dad. That's awesome. I love my dad, too. <laughs> yeah. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Denver and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Jeff, what advice would you give yourself? I think I would have gone to another school because I yearn right now. My daughter's at Yale and I see what she's learning and I envy her so much. Those are such amazing classes. And I'm, I think that people who are better rounded are always more attractive to future opportunities. If you get a chance to go to a great college or you go to a really good college, that's your time to take courses that you're interested in. That's the time when you actually have a little period of time to become a more interesting person. You don't have to just go the vocational route. You don't have to say, oh, if I want to be in the music business, I better not take literature. I, I better take how to work in the studio 101. Of course, you want to know those things. But if I could go back, I would finish college, I would have probably gone to a different school where I was more intellectually stimulated. I don't think I was. And that was obviously partly my fault as well. You know? Well, you turned out okay, Jeff. I appreciate you saying that. I, my mother, who used to always say to me, and this was 20 years after I started my company, can you explain to me what you do? <laughs> she literally didn't know. My final thing I'll say here 
it's okay to have a job that you have trouble explaining to another person because it means that you're in the right place doing something cool, especially in a business that's shifting so much. Sometimes it's hard to explain exactly what you do, but it's really about what you're enjoying doing and whether you're being fulfilled. And I think another test is if you would do it for free. I worked for free for three years. There you go. I'm working for free right now. And honestly, I am as happy as I have been when I've earned a lot more than this. This is speaking to my heart because it's the opportunity that I have to speak with incredible people like you and to share your wisdom and your insights and your experience with young people who would otherwise maybe never have the opportunity to meet you and learn from you. So I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You have such a cool job, even if I don't entirely understand everything you're doing. I love the products. (laughs) Thank you. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.